There's something about a cemetery, something about the feelings that we feel when we're here. Maybe it's the reality of our own mortality. The stat that you can't shake, that 10 out of 10 people die and you know it here better than anywhere else. Maybe it's just the reality of tears. Tears that always accompany, whether it be a sense of loss, whether it be a sense of separation, tears of regret. Or maybe it's just the reality of this is holy ground. There's something about this place that causes us to even be careful where we step because we're aware of who is here. These same emotions were the kind that people felt in the first century in a cemetery just like this in the Middle East. But what they were going to experience this day would absolutely blow their minds. You see, there are these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus had been very sick and had actually died. He passed away. Now, what made this especially complicated in the first century is the assumption of the way that the Gospel of John lays out the story is that both of the sisters were unmarried. And they looked to Lazarus for a source of protection and provision. Now they would be on their own. In this sequence, when Lazarus was sick, they had called for Jesus, called for him to come and perhaps heal their brother. But Jesus never came. Lazarus died. And the thing that had to be going through their minds, they had walked with Jesus. These were people who were close. They were disciples. They were followers of him. And yet, for people who barely knew his name, other people, Jesus had healed the sick. Jesus had caused the lame to walk. Jesus had healed the blind. And yet, for Lazarus, for them, there was nothing. No healing, no power, no hope. Jesus, however, would come. But it'd be four days too late. Lazarus has been dead four days and Jesus finally makes his approach to Bethany where they live. When Jesus comes close to the home, he has two conversations, one with each of the sisters. And both of them, independent from one another, say the same thing. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now we hear those words today and those words communicate truly true two very profound things on the one hand they communicate profound faith jesus you have the power to heal but also they communicate profound loss jesus you have the power to heal but you didn't come and it's to martha one of the two sisters that jesus says one of our eight i am statements the last of the sequence we're looking at in this gospel of john And it's there to her upon hearing these words that Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would have been healed. Jesus says to Martha in a cemetery, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say this when he was out walking in the countryside, philosophizing about big ideas. He didn't say it when he was in the synagogue where everyone was dressed in their Saturday best, looking all together. No, he said it here, here in a cemetery where the reality of death was so real. This was happening here and it was happening now. Emotions are running high for Mary, for Martha, for the crowds that have gathered and even for Jesus himself. 
John 11:35 is a very well-known verse in the Bible for two reasons. Number one, it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. But also it carries with it such depth. We don't know exactly what Jesus was weeping over. The Bible doesn't tell us. But here's one thing I can tell you for sure. Jesus was not weeping over Lazarus. He was not weeping over what Lazarus was and that he was separated from this group of people because all of that was about to change. Because in just a moment, Jesus would tell those near the tomb to roll away the stone. And Jesus would say, Lazarus, come out. And he did. People would remember this moment in time for years later, and they would say to one another, do you remember being at Lazarus's memorial service, his funeral, when he literally became the life of the party? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though he dies. This reality in a cemetery of amazing resurrection actually paves the way for what we celebrate today in Jesus' resurrection, what would happen just a short time later in a cemetery not far from there. And today we celebrate Easter. Good morning and happy Resurrection Sunday! What a great day to be together. Thank you so much for being here and making this a part of this great, great weekend. And uh, I want to thank you for two things. Some of you, by the way, you saw the video and you thought, well, Todd's not even here today? That's weird. You just kind of shot a video and took off. And I do appreciate you, at least those of you who laughed at my one joke that was in the video. I thought for sure that was pretty funny. And uh, some of you agreed. Some did not. That's fine, too. But uh, we're so glad you're here today, and we are. We have been working through these eight I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life is what we finish with today. And by being able to shoot that video, we were able to kind of give a, an overview of this whole Lazarus being raised, raised from the dead, but that really just sets the table for where we're going as we talk about Jesus' resurrection which meant infinitely more to us. The interesting thing is, Lazarus would later die. Again, Jesus raised to life forever. And so today we celebrate that, and we are so glad you're here. One thing that'll help you today as we're in our, our time together, we have notes in your worship folder, your program. If you want to take those out, they're this beautiful uh, green color. Have those available. We'll kind of walk through some things together, and we'll have some places to fill things in just so you can kind of keep tracking with us along the way. And what we're going to do today, we are going to look at Jesus' resurrection through a lens of basically answering this question, in a sense, so what? What does this mean? What is the reality that now I should respond to if Jesus did, in fact, conquer death? We're going to do that by looking at a few passages, short passages, in the book of Romans. And so if you have a Bible today, we're going to start in Romans 6. In just a moment, you can have your Bible open there. Romans is the sixth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And so if you find your way there, we'll be ready to go, and you can track with us in just a moment. 
what we want to do today, the statement that you see in front of you, the statement you see out on the lawn. And by the way, I want to thank all of our worship teams, all of our productions crew, those who made the aesthetics for today. What a great way. You can't miss it, right? And I love there's something about that visual representation that just keeps our focus on where it needs to be and where it should be today. And so good. Here's a statement that I want in the front of your mind all the way through our time today. It's in your notes. It's on the screen. Because Jesus lives, you can too. Because Jesus lives, you can too, beginning now and forever. Number one in your notes today, Jesus' resurrection defeated your greatest enemy. Jesus' resurrection defeated your greatest enemy. There are a few what I call movie moments in my lifetime that I will not forget. In some ways, they're even a little bit separated from the movie itself. It's simply something that happened during the movie. And one of them came this way. Um, I was a youth pastor, and Joanna and I were married, no kids yet. And so married, no kids means you can go to 10 p.m. showings of movies. And so that's what we did. We had some of our youth staff members, and we go to this movie, and we didn't know anything about it. It was more like, let's just go hang out together. So we go to this movie, didn't know anything about it. It was just horrible. Top to bottom, the acting, the dialogue, everything about the movie just reeked of who came up with this idea. And as we were watching, we get to a point in the movie about two-thirds of the way through where I think it was something related to a part of the plot or, or the dialogue that was so absolutely senseless in the moment that our friend Jill, who was sitting with us, at this moment this thing happened, in a very loud voice said, What? <laughs> Everyone in the theater turns around and looks at Jill, and she didn't even care. She's like, It's that bad. <laughs> I'll never forget it. Just sitting there going, Wow, who says that out loud? But we were all thinking it. Then another time was, it had something actually very much to do with the movie and what was going on in the theater at the same time, was the the night that the movie The Matrix opened, March 31st, 1999. Now, the only reason I know that is because I looked it up. But I was there. I was there. And my brother-in-law and I were together. We must have been vacationing somewhere because we weren't at either of our homes. So we go to this theater we've never been to. And he asked me, do you want to go see a movie? And I said, sure. And so we go, and he's like, there's this movie. It's just opening today called The Matrix. I said, oh, okay, I don't know anything about it. Why don't we go? And we go to this movie. We go, and, and it's opening night. And you just imagine, imagine a theater. This was a huge theater, so easily sat 400 plus. And we were lucky to find two seats together by the time we got there. The place was packed. And there was a buzz in the room before the movie even started. You just tell there was this anticipation. And I'm sitting there going, I have no idea what this is about. I had a total clean slate. I'm not anticipating it to be great, not anticipating it to be dumb. I just don't know. We'll see. And as the movie begins, and as it's going through the the case, I'm learning in real time, this is no just sci-fi movie. Now, by the way, I'm going to unload the plot line in just a second. This movie came out 18 years ago. If you haven't seen it yet, that's on you, okay? So if you're like, Todd, don't tell me how it ends. I'm telling you exactly how it ends. It's your fault. So we're going through this movie, and and what's, what's kind of obviously kind of, you know, bubbling to the top is that this key figure is this very much Messiah-like figure. His name's Neo. 
And as things are continuing to progress, people are wondering if he's the one. You keep hearing that phrase. And, and things climax to an end. There's even a betrayer in the movie who sells him out. Very similar to a guy named Judas in our story. And in this one climaxing moment, those who are his enemies come against him and they shoot him dead. He's lying dead on the floor. You're watching this movie and you've had an hour and 45 minutes of building to this point and, and your mind is going, how can this happen? This is the guy, it, it just makes sense, he's the one. How in the world can you kill off the main character and we're not even, you know, the, this, how can this happen? And it's in that moment when he's laying there dead, over the course of the next few seconds, he has eyes open up. His eyes open up, and as he stands to his feet, he's not hobbled, he's not weak, he asserts himself. And I will tell you something I've never had happen to me in a movie before. Everybody in the audience applauds. Applauds are everywhere. I've seen a movie at the end, everyone applauds when the, applauses when the credits are rolling, but never in a movie. Everyone went nuts. And from that moment on, not only did he rise from the dead, but he conquered every one of his enemies and everyone was assured he is the one. All I could think of in that moment when the place is bursting into applause, all I can think of, this is Easter. And it is. That's exactly what happened. I was amazed how a group of people who gathered together to watch a thing on a screen not only saw what Easter really is all about, conquering death, but actually went nuts applauding over it. Because here's the one thing we were all thinking in that moment, nothing else can beat him. When you beat death, nothing else can beat you. Now see, everyone loves a good story. There's no doubt about it. And for some today, some that are joining us or some that are maybe even here consistently, I don't want to assume anything. That's all the resurrection is. It's another good story. And what I don't want to do today is I don't want to assume that those big letters on the lawn, these letters here behind me, that you see them and believe that this really happened. I don't want to make that conclusion because that very well may not be where you're at. And I'm okay with that. I'm really glad you're here. But here's what I want to do. I want to tell you what the Bible records actually did happen at Jesus' resurrection. I just want you to give it a hearing. That's all I ask. Give it a hearing. And it goes this way. The Bible records that Jesus was born in the first century in the Middle East. And it portrays him as the savior of the world, the long-awaited Messiah who came not just for the nation of Israel, but literally for all the nations, for you. The Bible records him as being sinless, both in his essence and in his actions, because the Bible records him as being fully God and fully human. The Bible records that Jesus presented himself to the people as Messiah, and they responded to it. It's something we celebrated last weekend called Palm Sunday. The Bible also records that Israel rejected their king, that Rome crucified this king. And we celebrated that two nights ago on Good Friday. 
The Bible records that on Sunday morning, when some women who had been at the tomb where Jesus had been laid, so it's not as though they had a confusion over where Jesus had been put, they arrived back to this tomb and yet now the stone is rolled away and there's no body. There's no body inside. The Bible records that in the midst of their confusion, what has happened? Who's taken him? These are the questions they're asking. That two angels appeared to these women and told them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That he'd conquered death and that he was alive. The Bible records that the risen Jesus, the death-defeating Jesus, appeared to numerous people. Some individuals, some by pairs, some in small groups, and even some, a group of 500 at once. He did that over the course of the next 40 days, first-hand eyewitnesses who saw him. And the Bible records that at the end of that 40-day period, Jesus ascended back to the Father from where he'd come. And that he's now preparing a place, and he's going to come back and take those, receive those that have followed him to be with him forever. That's what the Bible records. That's the story. And, and you can do with it, that's the, the incredible, amazing thing about God, you can do with it what you want. But I at least wanted you to hear, that's what the Bible says. Now some of you, when you hear that, you actually say just what my friend Jill said. What? That's really what the Bible says? It's kind of crazy. And others of you hear it and you say, that's Easter, baby. That's exactly what happened. And the reality is, is that if you're in one of those two camps, it's really hard to understand why the people on the other side think what they think. It's that kind of divisive of a truth, of a story. But the reality is this. That's what the Bible teaches. Again, you do with it as you please, but just know at least that's what the Bible says. Now, you, want to, you might want to place the story of Jesus' resurrection among the ranks of what we call tall tales. Kind of put it in the Paul Bunyan category, the Johnny Appleseed. You know, these were people who were pretty, you know, significant or unique, but they were not supernatural. They were not people who were miraculous. To some, it sounds far-fetched. It sounds fantastic. And because of all the other stories that you've heard in your life, I can understand why you might think that. But watch this. To Jesus' followers, it is fantastic. It is fantastic news that Jesus conquered death on our behalf. Look at the passage that we talked about, Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. This is what Paul records. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Like you heard in the video a few moments ago, the stat that none of us get to cheat, 10 out of 10 people die. You don't think about that very often. We actually choose very much to ignore it. We don't want to talk about it. We want to keep it far, far away. And yet that's the reason we shot that video on purpose in a cemetery because you were somehow transported to that reality you never want to face. In your notes, here's the point. If Jesus isn't your solution to the death problem, then what is? Simple question. If Jesus is not your solution to the death problem, then my simple question to you, then what are you hoping for? 
What are you trying to put some sort of change in that mix? The Bible says that he is that solution. My hope is that you'd at least consider this narrative as a possibility, something that actually might be what you need most. And realize this, that for everyone in this room who's put their hope in this reality of Jesus' resurrection, they believe in the truth of eternal life, not because of their own morality. Not because that their kind of scales go better on the good than on the bad. They don't put their hope in, in the resurrection of their own lives because they're just optimistic and think happy thoughts. They put their hope squarely on the fact that Jesus died and rose again in their place. That's what it's based on, on him and him alone. Number two in your notes today, Jesus' resurrection changes your identity and your purpose. Jesus' resurrection changes your identity and your purpose. Now, let's start with this. Jesus' resurrection, the the 30,000-foot view, what this matters to you is what we said a minute ago in the notes. It solves your death problem. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he or she dies. So Jesus says, I am the solution to that problem. So we never want to lose sight of that, that eternal life. Hope in Jesus relates to the hope of heaven. However, sometimes that's all we think the resurrection does. That's all the implications it has. I remember as a kid going to a camp. It was always about this time of year in the spring. And uh, in elementary school, we went to a camp called Green Oaks Ranch, kind of down in Escondido. And as we'd go to this camp, uh, it was put on, uh, the, the, the staff were college students, did a great job. We had so much fun. And as we were there, they would do this skit on usually one of the, like, probably Saturday nights, just a weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And they do this skit, and we're sitting there watching. I'll never forget it. It's kind of like, it was called the Stagecoach. And at the Stagecoach skit, there were a group of people standing on, like, a Stagecoach platform. And they'd be talking, and they're asking, well, where are you going? They'd show each other their tickets, and they all had these black tickets. Oh, I'm so-and-so, and and I've done this, and I'm about that, and I'm going here. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these four college young men would come screaming from behind the the amphitheater. Blah! And as they were coming, they'd come, and they'd pick one of those people up off the stagecoach ramp, and they'd carry him away. And they'd scream, ah! on their way. And, and I'm a church kid, and I'm connecting the dots, and I'm figuring, okay, these people on this stagecoach thing, they have black tickets. That means they're not, they haven't put their faith in Jesus. These guys are coming for them. This is the stagecoach to hell. Like, it's literally what's happening. I'm, like every other fourth grader there, I'm pretty freaked out, you know, and I'm thinking at any moment, they're going to come from the back and pick me up and carry me out. And, and everything changes when this one person enters, you know, is on the stagecoach, and they take out their ticket, and they have a gold ticket. And the same thing happens. Ah, they come screaming around. They come to the person with the gold ticket. Woo! And then they woo! They run the other way. And the gold ticket person, interesting thing about the gold ticket person, they don't get on the stagecoach to hell, but they don't go anywhere either. They just have the, the play closed. And my point is sometimes we think of a hope in the resurrection as though that's all it is, is this gold ticket. So that you would not spend eternity apart from Jesus. And I want to say that's the big reason, but it's not the only one. It's not the only one according to what the Bible teaches. In your Bibles, Romans chapter 7, just over a couple pages. Look at what we see. You see, when Jesus was raised again, the Greek word anastasis literally means to cause someone to stand up again. 
Isn't that a beautiful word? To cause someone to stand up again, to be raised from the dead is what that Greek word means. And, and Jesus' resurrection, it affects our lives here and now, not just in eternity. Chapter 7, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Three quick implications of the reality of the resurrection here and now. First off, you died to the law through the body of Christ. The law in the Bible talks about this standard, this perfection standard that is found in the first five books of the former covenant of the Old Testament. And in it, basically, God says, not only to his people, but to all of us, here's my standard of perfection on the way you ought to live. And what we find out very quickly, what the nation of Israel found out very quickly, nobody can do this. And so built into the system was a way that you could make it right when you'd done wrong. By the way, this law would have been lived out perfectly if we would have maintained the status we had at the garden at the beginning. And because of Adam's failure, we are his race. We all find ourselves in the same fallenness and predicament of sin. And that's what the law now proves to us. It serves, we find it in the book of Galatians, that the law simply shows how bad you need a savior. It was never meant to be jump high or try to be this person. It was always meant to be, oh yeah, I'm not that guy. I can't fulfill that. I can't keep that. I can't live that way every day. And in the midst of failure, I recognize how deeply I need a savior. Romans 7 says that you died to that. The standard of us all, having lived at this perfection, we've all missed the mark. That's the word sin. So as a result of that, we recognize our fallenness, we recognize our failures, and what that does all the more is it makes us realize how deeply we need a Savior. This passage said that Jesus' resurrection, his death actually, provided a way for you to be not under that law in the same way. Just today on the drive-in, I was listening to a song called Before the Throne. It's actually a relatively old song. And I was listening to this one line in it that just always captures me. It says that God the just is satisfied when he looks on him, looks on Christ, and pardons me. Something about what Jesus does at the cross and in the resurrection when I place my faith in Jesus and what he did there, when God sees me, he sees his son. All in our series, when we kicked off the fall this last year, looking in the book of Ephesians, we found again and again all these references to a new identity, to what it means to be in Christ. And that's the second part of this reality, that you might belong to another. See, the Bible notes that as we miss the mark, the point is that Jesus completely fulfilled the law. Jesus completely lived that life of sinless perfection. And he did it not just to do it, but he did it for you on your behalf. So that he could rightly stand in the place of a substitute for what you and I could never do on our own. So now because of Jesus being raised from the dead, you have a new identity. You belong to him. And it's not an oppressive ownership. It's not like you've traded one master, as it were, who was ruthless and cruel for a new ruthless and cruel master. Instead, it's one who gives you a new name. 
One who gives you a new identity. One who gives you a new place at his table. And now you see life through the lens of grace and gratitude, no longer through the lens of merit and macho. Like Yoki said, we're starting a brand new series next weekend called Road Trip, a series about God's design for your family. Where are you going? And in it, one thing that's so rich about the reality of family, it always is a place to belong. It's always a place to be found. And you have an aspect of your identity is shaped by who you are to these other people. We get that. The Bible gets that. And even in this passage, when you put your faith in what Jesus has done for you in the resurrection, you now belong to someone new. Last thing is you have a newfound purpose. That last part of the phrase, you, that you might bear fruit for God. See, one of the greatest epidemics in our Western culture today is purposelessness. We don't know why we're here. Whether it be just kind of going through the motions of a job and family and whatever's supposed to happen next, or whether it's, you know what, I can't even get off the couch. I seriously don't know what I'm doing on the planet. And what we do is we settle for lesser things. We either become consumers of stuff or we become critics of everybody else. But we can't figure out why we're here. Well, just two weekends ago, we looked at this reality when Jesus said, I am the true vine, and you, my followers, are the branches. And what we saw in that illustration, in that metaphor, is that what do branches do? Branches' only responsibility is to stay connected, to remain, to abide in the vine. The vine does the work producing the fruit that the branches simply get to enjoy, simply get to bear through them. We bear fruit to God because of the resurrection and because we find ourselves, we choose to remain in this vine who in turn is going to produce fruit through our lives. No longer being under the weight of the law, finding a new identity in Jesus' family and living a life that is productive because it's connected to the vine. All of these things are what Jesus' resurrection enables you to engage in experience. Watch this. If you choose to respond to his invitation of forgiveness and faith. And that last statement sets the groundwork for our last point today. Number three in your notes. Jesus' resurrection demands your response. Jesus' resurrection demands your response. Now, notice I didn't tell you which response you have to make. Because why? That's not my job. I don't get to make that decision for you. That is really up to you. And it's amazing, amazing to me that God gives us that ability, a remarkable responsibility to get to choose what we want to do with what he's done on our behalf. But so it is. The last place in our passage today, Romans chapter 10, for some of us a well-known verse, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the gospel. This is the great news. And it's literally as simple as that. I didn't say it was easy, but I did say it's simple. That's what it's based on. That's the kind of response that the Bible is pushing you, is encouraging you, is drawing you toward. Think of this statement. I can say to you, we're sitting down over coffee, having a conversation. I might say this. I might say, you know, fire can be a hazard to your home. Fire can be a hazard to your home. And as you hear that statement, you would go, huh, yeah. Or you go, if you're a fool, nah, I'm good. But either way, you could have an opinion about what I said and have to do nothing about it. Yeah, I agree with Todd. I don't agree with Todd. Fire can be a hazard to your home. But in the same conversation, instead of saying that, if we're sitting over coffee and I say, your house is on fire. You're not going to have an opinion. You're going to be done with your coffee. And you're going to get up and you're going to hightail a home and do whatever you can do about this burning structure. You see, that kind of statement demands an active, decisive response. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus' resurrection can be helpful to you. Where you would just stop and think about that. Hmm, maybe so, maybe no. The Bible doesn't portray that. It said the Bible says Jesus' resurrection is the only way to cure your death problem. And all of a sudden, you realize that there is the demand of a response. Your house is on fire and Jesus is the only means of salvation. That actually means you have to do something with that statement. You see, just last week as we looked at these I am's, Why is it important to declare Jesus as Lord? Jesus declared himself to be that. When he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, there's none like me. And it's not out of arrogance, it's out of simple reality. Fully God, fully man, the Savior of the world. And when you declare that Jesus is Lord, you're simply saying, Jesus, you are indeed who you said you were. And why is it important to believe that God raised him from the dead? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that if if we don't have that truth, it doesn't even matter what you believe. If somehow the resurrection never happened, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that we who've put our hope in Jesus, in the resurrection, are more pitied than all people. If the resurrection is not true, the resurrection is absolutely essential. And it makes us different than being people who are merely religious. It makes us a people who are looking forward to a real hope. And that's why we live the way we do today. When you respond to Jesus' resurrection in these ways, he is Lord, he was raised from the dead, the Bible assures you you'll be saved. Did you catch what it didn't say? There, There wasn't a caveat There wasn't an asterisk. It never said, you will be saved as long as you've never... You will be saved if you go to... You will be saved. 
That's the response. And that's the awaited promise when you put your faith and your hope in what Jesus has done on your behalf. That response that the Bible would like you to make, I also, I so encourage you to do it. There's no better time than today. But like we've said all day long, that choice is yours. In your notes, how will you respond to what Jesus has done on your behalf? That is the question of the hour. But I'd encourage you, make that response and let this be the thought that's on your brain throughout the week this week. Because Jesus lives, you can too, both now and forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you today, a people who are so grateful because your resurrection and your life changed everything for us. You proved yourself to be so much more than a good teacher, so much more than a prophet. You proved yourself to be the one-of-a-kind son of Jesus, or son of God, who took away the sin of the world. And for that, we are so ecstatic today. We recognize that when you rose from the dead, when you conquered death, nothing can beat you now. And you conquered in that moment our greatest fear, our greatest enemy. And for that, we say thank you. You may be here today on this Easter Sunday and you realize before I even am going to say these words, you've never made this response. You've never responded to this great hope, this great news, this gospel of Jesus. And the interesting thing is you're ready. I don't need to coax you. I don't need to somehow try to manipulate you. All you need to do is be asked, be invited, and I'm here to do that today. And the way that you respond to this gospel is you begin by, A, admitting. So what we saw in that earlier passage in Romans 7, admitting that you are a sinner, admitting that you do, you have consistently missed the mark of God's perfection and holiness. And when you admit that, you simply admit that you're a part of the human race because that's all of our stories. B is believe. You believe that Jesus is Lord. You declare it with your mouth and you believe that God raised him from the dead, making him the only savior available. C is choose. You choose today to say, Jesus, thank you for being this way that I can be right with God, this way that gives me hope for eternity. I I choose today to follow you. I give you my life. You can make that choice right here, right now where you sit. And that response, I just want to encourage you, make that choice today. And this is what I want you to do in response to that today out on our plaza at our Welcome Center We have just a great resource, a kind of what next thing. But even to me, more important than that, if if you today, if you respond in these ABCs, I just want to encourage you, tell someone. Tell someone that invited you. Tell someone that you came with today, a family member, a friend. Tell somebody today on Resurrection Sunday, I recognized I needed Jesus as my Savior. And Jesus, today, we pray in no greater name than yours. We love you. We thank you for being all that you are. In your name we pray. Amen.